0: We come today to Romans, the middle of Romans 13, and we'll be covering verses uh, 8 to 10. I've been looking forward to these verses for months now, actually over a year, Uh, actually ever since we started the book of Romans, because really these three simple but powerful verses, the the whole book in a lot of ways pivots on them. They consummate, we're going to see today, The last 13 chapters that we've been through, not to mention the whole plan uh, of redemption, not to mention the whole reason we're going to see for the Christmas season. I can't imagine a better way to enter into that season on this first Sunday of Advent, because what we'll be be talking about today is what motivated Christ to come in the first place. And it was the whole point of His coming, uh, what He wanted to accomplish through His coming in all of us, it's what motivated him and it's what can motivate us as we live our lives. It might not sound like much at first, but just wait. Let's read Romans 13, starting in verse eight. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So far in Romans 12 and 13, we've been seeing, really, how to bring the truths of the gospel, how to bring the words of the gospel to life uh, by playing the music of the gospel. We've been looking at the qualities of true Christianity. You might say that Romans 12 and 13 are kind of like the, the score for a symphony. And each of the qualities are like a different note. Qualities like perseverance, like integrity, like humility, um, and a, a number of others, hospitality. We've spent the whole summer in that. So far, we've been taking it one quality at a time, one verse at a time, one note, you might say, at a time. But of course, you've got to bring it all together. You've got to make it sing. Because our goal is not just, you know, to memorize our parts. That's intellectualism. It's not even to memorize our parts and then just pound out the notes in the right order. That's legalism. That's Pharisaism, as we're going to see. No, the goal of all this, of course, is to play the music. To play the music of the gospel. And that, to that end, as we're going to see today, Paul now gives us the motif, the underlying motif, the musical theme that unites all those verses as we obey not out of law, not just out of law, but out of love. Because that fulfills the law. These three verses divide very simply into three parts. One part per verse. First, the proposition. And then second, Paul's explanation. And then third, his summation of it all. First, the proposition, which is that love is the fulfillment of, of the law. Owe nothing to anyone, he says in verse eight, but to love one another, for he who loves his neighbour has fulfilled the law. He's saying that under all of our duties, all of our neighborly duties, all of our responsibilities to God and to man, we owe nothing but love. The Greek word here for has fulfilled the law is pepleiroken. It's in the perfect tense, which means he's talking about a completed action or a, a, a consummation. It's like this line of activity that builds up to a climax. That's what it means by has fulfilled. A process that comes to a resounding conclusion. And he's talking here about the conclusion of the process. What he's saying is this. The one who gets to the place where he loves from the heart through all he does has arrived. He's reached, you know, the pinnacle of success in God's eyes. That's the reason for the season. Because obedience is at best uh, conceived when it's done out of law, but it's only consummated uh, when it's done out of love. You may start by doing it, you know, as an act of the will. That's a good way kind of to prime the pump when you don't feel like doing something that you know God wants you to do. Obeying just because you're supposed to, even though you don't feel like it. You you may be acting out of, you know, rote obedience at first anyway on a particular day when you decide to love your husband in spite of whatever. You know, or your wife or your employer, uh, in spite of your murderous thoughts, you know, and that's not all bad. Such obedience is a good thing. It's good you don't kill your husband, right? That's the law. Thou shalt not murder. You're fulfilling the law. But if that's it, if that's all the farther you go, you're going to be a slave. You're, you're, you're going to be just forever slaving over the notes rather than getting caught up in the music. You'll be in bondage to commandments that continually go against the grain of the flesh in you, that remind you more of who you aren't than who you are in Christ. But it's all out of law. Who you are in the maestro. And you'll be a slave to the law rather than soaring in the spirit as you fulfill the law from the heart. So Paul begins with a proposition that he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then we see his explanation for this, next verse, verse nine, for this you shall commit, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet all the knots. And if there is any other commandment, it is, here it is, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The explanation is simply this. Love fulfills the law because love sums up the law. Another translation says, when you add everything, when you add up everything in the law code, the sum total is love. Now, just what does that mean? Well, the Greek word that's translated um, uh, to sum up the law, to add up to, is anakethelayuntai. And I had to work on that this week so that I could actually say it with you. So I hope you're impressed. Okay. It's a very unique word in the New Testament. It shows up only two times. Once here and then again in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1.10. Where Paul talks about the summing up, that's the same word, of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things upon the earth. He says here that, that God has had one goal... Uh, through all history an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, Ephesians one ten. that is the summing up, there it is, of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. And what that means is this, right now there are many things that are in revolt against Christ. Even the whole natural world is fallen. But someday, all things are going to be summed up in Christ. That is, they'll be all lined up with the head. It'll be like, like the, the harmonic convergence of the universe. For a resplendence of glory that's going to be around us and that's going to come through us, the likes of which we never even conceive possible. If we ever get to Revelation, we're going to learn all about this. But when Paul says back in Romans 13, that in the same way, the law is Summed up, anakephalaiuntai, in love, he means that love is what uh, harmonizes the law. It's what he says in Colossians 3. Above all things, put on love. He gave a whole list of things we're supposed to do, just like he had here in Romans 10. Then he sums it up in the same way. Among, above all these things, put on love, and here it is, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. From the law to the prophets, from our marriages to our families to the church, love is greater than the law, like the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Love is greater than the law, just look at that picture up there, like music uh, transcends the notes that make it up. Because when your life is motivated by love, you harmonize the law, you bring music to it. You bring the score to life as more and more you play the music rather than just hammering out the notes and gritting your teeth and making it happen. And it's so hard and there's no spirit in it. Yeah, I can begin there, but I hope it doesn't end there. That's what he's saying. You see, external actions are not enough. The Pharisees thought they were fulfilling the law because they weren't murderers. They weren't adulterers or whatever. Right? To which Christ said, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. You think you're pretty good for that, right? Well, what's going on inside you? But I say to you that everyone who is angry at his brother shall be guilty before the court." He's saying, you may not commit murder, that may, you know, that may be the culturally acceptable shape of your life, you know, on the outside. Of your right-wing conservative lifestyle, or whatever, which the Pharisees were famous for, but on the inside he said they were whitewashed tombs. Because they, they were filled, with, they didn't commit adultery, but they were filled with adulterous thoughts. They didn't murder, but they were filled with angry anger. They, there was hypocrisy on the inside and murderous anger and terrible motives. And dead man's bones, he said, and all uncleanness. Yes, road obedience is good, but it's not enough even if you give all your possessions to feed the poor, 1 Corinthians thirteen three, but do not have what? Love. Same thing. It will profit you nothing. The right actions are not enough. It's got to be harmonized. Another way of saying it would be this. Uh, the law is one of God's greatest uh, masterworks but any masterpiece can be badly played right for some of you who who play in- musical instruments or whatever because no matter how great the music is what it ends up sounding like all depends on the musician when the pharisees obeyed they did it they followed the notes of the law But Christ said it sounded like a bunch of noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. And we can sound like that too. It was a cacophony, but not a harmony. They were clueless about the beauty of the Spirit and the harmony of deeds that He wanted to orchestrate among them. They had no idea what they were playing. They turned, you know, something like a Moonlight Sonata into something more like what you'd hear in the Third Reich, maybe their national anthem. It was from the Pit of Hell, he said. A death march straight there, a kind of a goose-stepping military march that saluted their father, the devil, but they had all the right forms. Just hammering out the notes of the law and totally murdering the music. But it's to be different with us. And it is. I've seen it with us. You have too. For surely he taught us to love one another. That's from O Holy Night. That's been going through my mind all week. It's got to be one of my favorite Christmas hymns. Surely he taught us. What did he teach us? What did he teach us over and under? And through it all, simply to love one another. That's how Christ summed up the law and the prophets. And then the the song goes on to say his law, his love, and his gospel is peace. His law, his love, for God so loved that he gave. Yes, there was an action when he gave, but it came out of a passion for God so loved which is more than the action, and so, with the son who was born to die thanks to the passion of the Christ, as we call it it 's the theme that can sweep us up as we play our parts, it can fill us, uh, fill us up, run through us under and over all we do as we obey, not just out of law but out of love, and then finally. Verse 10, we're getting to how to do it. Love does no wrong to his neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Really, if you think about it, in each of these three verses, Paul says the same thing in three slightly different ways. He was a good preacher. He had one point hammered away in three ways. He starts out in verse 8 with the proposition. Again, it's in the perfect tense, the climactic tense, that he who has loved his neighbor has fulfilled the law. and That is, your obedience is consummated. When it's done out of love. And don't rest with anything short of that. And then in verse 9 he gives the explanation. that The law itself, all the commandments without exception, can come together in a heavenly harmony. Because they're orchestrated to play the music of love. And then in the next verse, verse 10, we see his summation. Love does no wrong to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment uh, of the law. Literally that translates, love works no evil against a neighbor. The law says you shall not commit adultery. That's verse 9. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. The law is negative, not positive. You might say that the law defines this space without filling it with anything, it's the form of godliness. It protected the Jews in Christ's day. It warded off all the pagan spirits that latched on to ungodliness with the Gentiles and the practices which surrounded them. But the Jews left it empty. which left them wide open to religious spirits and practices from the pit of hell that welled up from their flesh, from the inside of them, that were worthy of condemnation. They became whitewashed tombs, self-righteous, prideful, hypocrisy in the way where they loved. Which is the exact opposite of what Paul means here at the end of our passage for today using the word play rao. Love is the plerao, the fulfillment of the law. This word occurs seventeen times in the New Testament, and all but four of them it's translated not fulfillment, but fullness. Which is actually a better translation here. Love is the fullness of the law. Kind of the same thing. Love fills the form of godliness with the fullness of the Spirit. The Apostle John used the same word when talking about Christ when he said, of his fullness, play raoma, we have all received grace upon grace. The idea being that Christ was so full of grace, grace upon grace, that there's more than enough to spare for everyone who came to him for love. A a fullness is an abundance in contrast to a stinginess. We're talking here about the stinginess of rote obedience versus the fullness of this kind of uh, reckless abandonment, the pleroma, the fullness of love that more and more can permeate all we do. And you can see it in those who have it. So where does the rubber meet the road? Well, it did for me two weeks ago. I shared some of this with you yesterday, two weeks ago when my mother died. When she, remember, I told you about reading the scripture and she opened her eyes at a particular point. And I asked her a question and she turned and looked at me. And everyone in the room said that her eyes and they were, they were glowing. They were shining. They really were. They were so warm and motherly as they looked at me for the last time. She wasn't doing a thing except dying. But her eyes said it all. She was loving without doing a thing. And I'm telling you, it was so healing to see her die that way after years of thinking that my first father who died when I was sick couldn't conceive of death, after years of thinking that he died because he was mad at me, he had daggers in his eyes, so I thought. This was the opposite of that. It was the spirit of true love, which is exactly what Paul's talking about today. And her life was a testimony to this teaching. Such people are not stingy. They're rather filled with liberality. They don't view themselves, you know, as reservoirs with limited resources. And you better not give too much out because you're never going to get it back, right? No, they're, they're rivers and not reservoirs. What they do is not just out of obligation, though sometimes it starts that way, but rather out of compulsion, out of conviction, out of compassion. It's the, it's the lavishness of Jesus that Paul's talking about. That's the title of a book by G.H. Morrison. He said, Love never goes the measured mile, but always to the uttermost. Love never haggles, never bargains with a carefully calculated less or more. Love never asks how little I can do, but always how much. What does it look like? Well, that's one example. I've seen it in this church over and over again. And many of you have too. Many examples, and I have to skip all the ones that I was going to mention here. There are scores of them. When we came here first, three and a half years ago, and got to know the congregation, the one thing I heard was, Oh, holy night, surely he taught them to love one another. In so many ways, and there's... Obviously, areas where we need to work. But in so many ways, we are truly a caring community. How do you get it? Well, if you're in a caring community, that's infectious. And that's one of the best ways to get it. To go to a church that's got it. Because it's caught a whole lot more than it's taught. Right? It's why we're devoting an entire ministry year to it, because it's so important. It's what this year of the caring community is all about. It's about First Thess 4, 9. Now concerning, this is this is written for you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught of God to love one another. But this is the year of the caring community. We urge you, brothers, to do it more and more. Which is what this year is all about, developing kind of, you know, a greater critical mass of true love, a harmonic convergence of love that's infectious, that spreads it to hearts that need it, like all of us need it. Which is one reason I come to church every week. So this year, on top of all the normal places that it happens, we're going uh, incre- to increase and abound in this through our Sunday brunches together. Isn't that a great kind of critical mass? Which is going to be next week again. Through our new service times, which leave more time for Fellowship. And I'm almost done, and it's 9.30, so that's the promise. You're going to have a half hour for fellowship. Through a 40 days of love small group experience. Just have to commit to a small group for six weeks, and you'll learn about love. We'll tell you more about that next year. Uh, to a love and respect seminar on Valentine's weekend. That'll teach us how to love our spouses better. And more through this very pulpit next Sunday. When we'll learn more about how to stir up the kind of love that we've been talking about today. This week, we've seen the goal, really, the end. Next week and the week after will be, really, the means to the end as we go further in the chapter of truly loving one another. Father, we thank you that you've not only set out the ideal, but you've empowered us to realize the ideal more and more. And you've given us the resources that we need most of all in the body of Christ where more and more there can be a critical mass of true love. I pray, Father, for this year that more than ever we would have an infectious kind of love and that you would teach us at ever deeper levels how to love one another. For his law was love and his gospel was peace. We thank you that you so loved that you gave the babe born in a manger. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering in true love. And share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit who makes it true. And may that grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be through us this week. Amen and amen. Thanks for coming.